Well, good morning. Uh, as a start, I uh, just want to say the family meeting that we had Tuesday uh, evening was helpful. Uh, not to say that's the, the end of the conversation. We checked the box off. Not going to do that again. In fact, it's happening again right now. But, uh, but just to say we planted some seeds and we started a conversation. And in many ways, this message is going to continue that conversation because this is a message about you and about me, which means in some ways it's the hardest kind of sermon to put into action. The hardest kind of work to do is to work on ourselves, Uh, to take a good hard look at ourselves and where we need to change. It reminds me of the person who famously asked G.K. Chesterton, the, the writer and theologian, what's the biggest problem in the church today? And he said, I am. If you were here last week, you know we talked about the need for unity, unity with uniqueness. We talked about the need for humility. We sang about it just a minute ago. We talked about letting grace be our teacher. We talked about the need to connect to each other relationally, especially across generations. I don't want us to lose sight of any of those important things. Those are the things that are going to move us towards increased health. And I want us to be working on the thing that is really the only thing that we can fix, which is ourselves. I don't want us to just learn about these ideas, learn about unity, learn about humility, but I want us to put them into practice. Remember the words of Jesus. He says, everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Well, we want to build our church on the rock. We want to be people who are built on the rock And that means we need to keep learning these things, keep putting them into practice. Grace teaches us to keep our focus on Christ. It's very easy to to take our foot off the gas, to go into coasting mode. But I think over these next few weeks, we really need to keep our foot on the gas of introspection. Uh, God is wanting to change you. Don't lose sight of that. Don't run away from that. One of our search team members was talking to me about the the need for our church to do some introspection. I think that's absolutely right. Each of us needs to look at ourselves. And we've been in this series called A Healthy Church, but ultimately a healthy church is just a group of healthy people, right? So that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to talk about ourselves, being healthy people who come together to make a healthy church. As the Bible says, though, knowledge by itself puffs up. We don't want to just learn about these things. We need to put them into practice because while knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And I was thinking about this idea, thinking about myself, doing some of my own introspection the other day, and I went to the grocery store, and I think it's a sign of getting older when you go to the grocery store, a place like that, and you hear your generation's music as sort of the, the background noise of the grocery store. Like, you know you're old when, you know, it's like your generation's music that is just sort of like, you know, playing in the background. And, and that happened to me at the grocery store. Uh, and, man, I, when I was young, I had a huge collection of music. I've always loved music. Uh, I had albums and then cassette tapes and then CDs, and I haven't got back on the vinyl train yet, but maybe I will. But, you know, my generation, we're kind of naturally introspective, so we tend to think that our era of music is the best. Oh, oh wait, that's true for every generation. We all think 
were the best. But, but I was there at the grocery store, and this song came on that's, that's maybe the, like the quintessential 90s era song. It was a one-hit wonder, uh, but it captures something of the spirit of the era. And uh, this, it captures something of the spirit of, of introspection that's necessary for us. There's a song, you may know it, you may not. It's called What I Am by Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Even the name of the group is kind of like ultimate 90s. But the lyrics, man, they're stirring. They're going to grab your heart. I know it. The song says this. What I am is what I am. Are you what you are or what? (laughs) And that's pretty much the heart of the song. It is over and over again. You know, the statement and the question. What I am is what I am. Are you what you are or what? And it's a ludicrous song lyric, really. I mean, it's, it's silly, but it sticks with you. And I heard it in the grocery store, and I had that nostalgic flashback moment, the way you do, you know, the way only music can kind of make you turn into yourself. And I had that moment where I kind of thought about that question. Am I what I am or what? Are you what you are or what? Introspection is really what we need. Are we what we are or what? It gets to the heart of identity. Who are we really as a people, as a church? And as Christians, we find our true identity only in Christ, Christ in us. The way Christ redefines our lives gives us an answer to that question. Are you what you are or what? Well, for Christians, the answer is yes and no. We are who we are, fundamentally, people made in the image of God, but we are also people who are sinners, tainted by sin to the very core. And yet, as Christians, we're also someone else. We're people who've been reborn, redeemed, remade to be like Christ, holy people. So it's really a good introspective question. What I am is what I am. Are you what you are or what? We've been in this series called A Healthy Church. We've been studying the book of Titus, and it's full of so many riches for us, maybe even more so than we expected when we first got started. And as we continue in that series today, we're entering the third and the final chapter of Titus, and I think it's helpful just to take a moment to to remember where we've been. The basic uh, outline of the structure of the book of Titus is helpful for us to remind ourselves about. You may recall at the opening of the book, uh, Paul gives instructions to his young protege, Titus, to set things in order in the church in Crete. And the book follows with a variety of instructions how to do just that. It talks about how the church should operate. It talks about healthy leadership in the church. That's chapter 1. It talks about how, how the church, the people of the church, should operate in their families, in their homes, in their relationships with one another. That's chapter 2. And now here we get to chapter 3, and the focus is, is one more aspect of setting things in order. In this case, the, the chapter focuses on how we, the church, should relate to the world. And one of the reasons this passage is so fitting for us this morning is because it's about us. In this section that talks about how the church should relate to the outside world, the answer is, look at yourself. Are you what you are or what? It's an introspective passage. So the passage talks about us, and it talks about us in two different ways. First, it reminds us who we are, and then it reminds us who we were. So that's our outline for this morning, who we are and who we were. And the passage starts off by reminding us who we are. What I am is what I am, right? Look with me, if you will, at Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards everyone. So it's a reminder. Remind the people, it says. That means we already know it. And literally, it says to keep reminding the people, an ongoing reminder. So we already know these things, and yet we need to be reminded again and again and again. This is who we are. It's a reminder, but at the same time, it's a forward-looking description, who we are, but really who we are to be, who we should be, what we should be like. We have to live into this reality, this description of who we are. So let's look at the description. First of all, we're to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be honest, a few weeks ago when I read this passage, it didn't seem all that surprising, didn't seem all that compelling to me. I mean, it's a reminder after all. So I already kind of knew these things to be true. I mean, all right, I pay my taxes. I follow the speed limit for the most part. Check, right? I lie occasionally. (laughs) But remember the basic outline of Titus. There's a lot of this kind of talk. Chapter 1 talks about authorities in the church, elders specifically talks about the need to submit to them and to avoid being misguided by false teaching, that kind of thing. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 talks about this authority structure in the household. Uh, And here in chapter 3, we see this authority structure in the community as a whole, outside these doors. So it's a reminder of who we are. We're people who are subject to authorities in every sphere of our lives. If it helps, just think about it this way. Wherever you are, You're on the bottom rung of the ladder. You're subject to others. As a Christian, no matter how high up you climb, you're always going to be on the bottom rung, subject to others. And I'm going to say something that might ruffle a few feathers, might make you a bit uncomfortable, but it's not me talking, because even when I stand up here, I'm subject to authority. The passage says, be subject to rulers and authorities, period. No qualifiers on the end of that sentence. No, uh, be subject to rulers and authorities as long as they do what I think is right. Or, uh, you know, whatever else you want to put in there. You know, as Americans, we love freedom, and it's a wonderful gift from God. We fight for it, and we praise God for it. But as Christians, we're subject to rulers and authorities. That's who we are. And understand that's true for every aspect of life, in in the community, in our country, but also here in the church. And I know it's easy to question leadership out there, sometimes in here, I get it. But in our culture, you know, there's this kind of idea that respect for authority has to be earned by that authority. But this passage says, be subject to rulers and authorities, not once they earn your respect or not, unless you feel like they're keeping something from you or they're incompetent or whatever else, just be subject to rulers and authorities. And let me say something else important. I love, I love that so many of us are so highly engaged in what's happening. This is so important. Stay engaged with what's happening here. Stay engaged with what's happening out there. Use the mind and the heart that God gave you. We want unity as a church, but unity with uniqueness. We all have a role. So when I say be subject to rulers and authorities, it doesn't mean don't engage in the process. I'm saying, yes, engage. 
Because having questions, having differences of opinion is not the same as disobedience, not at all. I'm simply saying that each of us as Christians has a call, a command, to be subject to rulers and authorities. And let me tell you why I stress that. There's two reasons. The first reason comes from another passage in the Bible, Romans 13. A very similar statement. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. So, same idea. Only in that passage, it gives us a helpful reason. The rest of that verse says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So God establishes authorities in the community, in the country, in the church as well. And I don't say that as some kind of holy power trip. I say it because it's true. The Bible says it. It's part of who we are. We're people who are subject to authorities because they've been established by the sovereign God. So that's the first reason. The second reason this is important is a cultural reason. Consider the context in which Paul writes these words. It's ancient Rome, and the authorities who exist are evil. They're amoral. They're violently opposed to Christians. You know that that Christians were fed to animals for sport in ancient Rome. Christians were impaled on poles and lit on fire in order to light up nighttime events. So if anybody had a reason to be revolutionary or anti-authority, it was the Christians in ancient Rome. And yet it's in that culture that Paul tells us twice, be subject to rulers and authorities. Paul, a man who was unjustly imprisoned, following Jesus, a man who was unjustly killed. But being subject to rulers and authorities, it's a critical part of who we are out there and in here. Being subject doesn't devalue us. It didn't devalue Jesus. Instead, it draws us closer to him, trusting in God's sovereign plan for the world and for our church. The rest of the passage describes more of who we are. It tells us to be obedient. That's the same idea as being subject to authorities except directly to God, cut out the the middleman, so to speak. And that's even more important, obedience to God. But notice the very next thing we are to be. Be ready to do whatever is good. And I know you've been paying attention throughout this series in Titus. We've seen this call to good works show up over and over already several times. By my count, this is the fourth time it shows up. There's two more times it appears later in this chapter. So that's six times in only three chapters. That's an average of a lot. It's an important idea. It's so important. It's a mark of what it means to be subject to authorities, what it means to be obedient to God. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. How do those things show up in our lives? They show up in good works. And it's so interesting because this idea of, of good here in the book of Titus, it's really the idea of beautiful. So in other words, the, the good works that we have to do are designed to be attractive attractive to a world that does not know Christ. Ephesians tells us we were created by God to do good works. We're created to live in a way that attracts other people to Christ. And Paul tells us that the good works we do are pleasing to God because he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So there's a very critical purpose in our good works. They show up all over this book of Titus because that's the way that people are drawn to Christ. It's a book about how to set the church in order, how to be a healthy church, and the good works are a critical part of that. 
We do good works to draw people to Christ. It happens through us forming relationships with people, loving them well. I love this quote from John Lansma. He says, Our good works have a point that goes well beyond staying under the speed limit, keeping a nice lawn, paying the bills on time. The ambition is larger. The promotion of faith, love, and hope, justice, mercy, and faithfulness to whatever degree possible, always with a view to the expansion of the ultimate and perfect salvation and life that are in Christ. So readiness to do good works is a critical part of who we are. It marks our identity as followers of Jesus. It makes us who we are. And it's really, really important that during this time of self-examination, during this time of introspection, during this time of growth at Trinity, it's really important that we don't take our eye off the ball, the ball of doing good works for the sake of the gospel. We have to maintain a focus on that even as we let God work in us and on us. We have to be ready to do good works. So these reminders continue, the reminders of who we are, who we are to be. This next section, in some ways, is a, is a description of what these good works might look like, how they might show up. Look at verse 2. It's a reminder to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility towards everyone. And a few weeks ago, when I read this passage, I thought, well, slander, all right, no big deal. I'm not saying it's a big deal now, necessarily. I don't want to throw down accusations, but I'm saying it's a good reminder for us. In times of uncertainty, especially in times of uncertainty, we need to be very, very careful not to slander. And this word slander, it's actually, in the original language, it's the word blasphemy. And blasphemy has a very simple definition. It's the verbal expression of evil. When you put it that way, it kind of stings a little bit. In a situation like we find ourselves in here at Trinity, it's natural for us to want to lay blame, to start looking for the bad guy or bad guys, to put all the blame here or there. But I told you already, it's a sermon about you and me. So let's not fall into the trap of slander, about looking at other people and trying to vilify them. Nobody here is the enemy. I'm saying we all need to commit to traffic in the truth and in love to make sure our words are true and not the verbal expression of evil. The next statement says we are to be peaceable. And really, this is one of the places where the rubber meets the road because we tend to think of peace as just the absence of conflict. Well, that's just not true. Whether it's in a preschool playroom or an international negotiation boardroom, peace is not just the absence of conflict. To say that really minimizes peace. I mean, you can, you can cover over conflict for a time, but it's going to rear its head again. Peace, more than anything, is a heart issue because a, a forced peace or a negotiated peace might address external conflict, might create a, a surface-level peace, but the turmoil of the heart remains. And I think for Christians, the goal is not just external peace, but the goal is to know Christ in the midst of the conflict. Peace ultimately is a fruit of the Spirit. It only comes from God. That, that means that, that true peace, we don't have to control other people to achieve it. We don't have to return evil for evil in order to find true peace. Even if another person does us wrong, or even if another person continues to do us wrong, we can still find peace because it's a gift from God. It's a reminder of who we are. 
We're peaceable people. We've been given peace by God. And being peaceable is how we can achieve unity in a church this size. We can achieve it unity with uniqueness because peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's finding Christ in the middle of the conflict. Well, that changes everything. There's no need for retaliation. There's no need to, to sway another person's opinion or anything like that. The only need is for each of us to draw closer and closer to the mind of Christ. He's the source of peace, the only source of true peace for people, for churches, for the world. So that's why this is a sermon about you and about me, not about other people. Because real peace, real unity starts in the heart. This idea of being peaceable goes hand in hand with the very next command, the command to be considerate. And, and all I want to say about this, just a reminder again, that nobody here is a villain. I don't want us to think about people who have significant differences of opinion as an enemy. The, the, the antidote to that kind of thinking is to be considerate, to act in love. And we have a saying on our church staff. In fact, it's one of our church staff values. We talk about it all the time as a staff. So important. One of our values is that we fill in the gap with trust, not suspicion. What does that mean? It means that when there's a gap, when what you thought was going to happen is different from what actually happened, there's a gap. Or when a person says one thing and you really thought or hoped that they would say something else, there's a gap, right? And anytime you have a gap, the tendency is to fill it, that gap in your knowledge or that gap in your understanding. And you could fill it a couple of different ways. You could fill it with suspicion. You can use it as an excuse to justify your preconceived ideas. Oh, man, that person, they're all the time that way. That, they, they're always letting me down. They're always this, this, this. You can, you can fill it with suspicion. Or you can choose to fill that gap with trust. Trust that the other person also has good intentions. Trust that the other person has just as good a heart as you do. You can treat that person the way you'd want to be treated. And then once you've filled that gap, once you choose to fill it with trust, then comes the hard part. You go to that person and you say, hey, there's this gap, and I'm choosing to fill it with trust. Can we talk about it? Can we talk about what happened? Can we talk about what you said? You do the hard work of relationships. That's how we keep building unity. We fill in the gap with trust, and then we build the relationship. So this whole description of who we are, it really climaxes in this last phrase. Show true humility to everyone. That's the ultimate description because it's really a, it summarizes what life as a Christian is like. It's, it's who we are to be. True humility is a, is a summary of all these qualities that have come before. Being subject, being obedient, being willing to do good works for others, not speaking evil of others, being peaceable and considerate. It's all tr- summed up in true humility. That's who we are, who we are to be. Winston Churchill was asked one time, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you give a speech, the, the hall is packed to overflowing? It is quite flattering, said Churchill, but whenever I feel that way, I just remember that if I was coming to be hanged, instead of giving a speech, the crowd would be twice as big. (laughs) It's true humility, right? But it's a great summary of who we are because of the description of Jesus himself. He tells us, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart. 
one of the qualities that marks the life of Jesus should mark our lives as well, true humility. Uh, You may recall some words that uh, Anthony Kaufman, one of our board members, shared last week from Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's just following the example of Christ, true humility. And this word that's translated as true humility has a great definition. It's a word that means not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. It's a recognition that what I am is what I am. Not undervaluing yourself, not false humility, not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. So you're not less than you are, and you're not more than you are. You're a sinner, but you're saved by grace. You're a holy person, but you have a rebellious heart. True humility is a critical piece of who we are. So this is a reminder to us, a reminder of who we are, who we are to be, and, and who we should strive to be. And it kind of begs the question, well, why do we need this reminder? Why, do, why is it so hard to remember to live this way? Well, the answer to that is the very next part of our passage. This first part is a reminder of who we are. The next part tells us we need the reminder because of who we were. Look at Titus 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Who we were is not a very pretty description. It's almost the exact opposite. So let's explore it together. It starts off with this word foolish. And this word foolish, this description of who we were, has the basic idea of being slow to understand. And it appears elsewhere in the Bible to describe people who were thinking like cattle. At one time, we were like that, all of us. Just, just foolish, not thinking, just going for what's right in front of us. Not, not thinking about the consequences, not looking down the road, just going for it. Right? And the next part of the description says we were disobedient. Well, that's the direct opposite of who we are, being obedient to God in verse 1. It goes on to describe another opposite. The passage says we were deceived, deceived about ourselves. That's the opposite of true humility, the opposite of thinking rightly about ourselves. We were deceived, and this this word deceived carries the idea of being led astray, of following the wrong guide. And that's how we were. we were. We were following the wrong leadership in our lives. The passage goes on to tell us what guide we'd followed. It says we we used to be, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That was our guide, our own desires, our own selfish passions. We were slaves to that, unable to break free, unable to stop following that guide that led us to all kinds of dangerous places. So I told you this is a sermon about you and about me. Each of us has to do the hard work of applying it to our own lives. And I want us to give us some things to think about. First, we need to be humble, true humility. We've got to have a right view of ourselves. What I am is what I am. What you are is what you are. We need to think rightly about ourselves. Recognizing who we were, but recognizing we don't have to stay that way. In this time of of introspection, this time of self-examination, let's commit each of us to true humility. And it starts with recognizing who we were. We were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We used to live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But let's commit to let our grace be our teacher. Let grace teach us how to live, to live with true humility, recognizing that even though that's who we were, we don't have to stay that way. We don't have to live like that anymore. We've been changed by Christ. And I want you to hear this quote from a Christian teacher that's so important. He says, You don't become a new person by changing your behavior. You discover the person you already are in Jesus, and you start to behave accordingly. Let me say that again. You don't become a new person by changing your behavior. You discover the person you already are in Jesus, and you behave accordingly. So see, it's not a matter of us working hard to become this new person, to start living as this person who's subject to authorities, obedient, who's ready to do whatever is good, who slanders no one, who's peaceable and considerate, who shows true humility to everyone. It's a matter of understanding who we are and acting accordingly. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the value of spiritual disciplines, about how growing more and more like Christ can happen through some specific practices. One of those practices is confession. And this passage is a great passage to confess, to just to say back to God this truth about ourselves. And so I want us to do that together this morning. And we're going to start by just confessing who we are, a statement of the kind of people that we really want to strive to be. We want to behave according to our identity. So I want us to recite together the first part of this passage. We'll put it up here on the screens. There it is. Okay. Uh, Say it with me. Lord, we want to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards everyone. And now we confess the harder part. Let's confess together who we were. The second part of the passage says this. Lord, we confess that at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We've got to continue to do the hard work of introspection, looking at our hearts. That's the only thing that we can fix. And it involves each of us working towards unity while still honoring our uniqueness. It involves each of us being willing to reach out and make relationships. And even in the hard work of that, we can't take our eye off the ball. We can't lose sight of the mission that God has called us to. He's called each and every one of us to be disciples who make other disciples. He's called our church to impact our valley for Christ. And that mission is not something that can wait. It can't sit on the back burner. We all need to stay engaged in that. Each of us needs to be ready to do good work. And we have a chance to do that every single Sunday, but we got a chance to do it especially here in a few weeks. We've been talking over the past few weeks about uh, praying, being ready to invite our friends to Easter here at Trinity. That's one simple way that we can all keep our eye on the ball, stay engaged in that mission, being focused on doing good works. So let me just encourage each of us to stay on that, keep praying, keep uh, thinking about who you want to invite. We're going to have invites next Sunday that you can use to, to, to hand out to your friends. So 
Uh, so keep your, keep your focus on that. So, who we were, it's not pretty. We confess that to the Lord, and, and it's healing. But God has changed us through Christ. We're not that person anymore. Who we are is capable of living so much differently, capable of loving other people so well, capable of doing good. Let's stay committed to that. Let me pray for us. God, we really are overwhelmed as we look at this description of who we were. And we think about the fact that that's the person that you saw. You saw a person that was foolish and disobedient and deceived, uh, enslaved by passions and pleasures. And, and yet that's the person that you chose to come and rescue and redeem. That's the person that you gave your life for. And we want to rejoice in the fact that you love us enough to make us your child to make us uh, sons and daughters of yours, to, to, to free us from who we were and to make us who we are, people who are obedient to you, who are living in a way that is always ready for good works, ready to spread the good news of what you've done for us and what you want to do for the whole world. And I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on that, keep our eyes focused on who we are and how we live into that And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.